You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Now back to the Old Testament and the shortest book in the Old Testament, Haggai. As you know, Haggai, if, if you've been with us, uh, is in, at one level about a building project, right? It's the, the Jews uh, having returned to their homeland after 70 years of captivity in Babylon are now rebuilding the destroyed temple. And as we come this morning to Haggai chapter 2, verse 10, two months have passed since the events that we talked about last week. So two more months of, of construction work uh, on, uh, on the temple. And what we'll read about now is that the day has come to sort of to, to lay the ceremonial foundation stone. And it's this occasion uh, that uh, is giving Haggai the opportunity to bring to the gathered people uh, another word from uh, the Lord. It's, we know the exact date when this happened, right? Haggai is the most precisely dated book uh, in the Bible. It's December 18th, 520 B.C. Uh, as the action opens here. Our text is Haggai 2, uh, 10 through 19. And if you are able, I'm going to ask you to please stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. It's printed for you, by the way, in the bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. This is God's word, Haggai 2, beginning at verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The, priest, the priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. pray. 
Father, please uh, forgive our sins, especially the sins of the preacher, and open up our lives to hear and to live your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that was a weird request, right? Uh, and, and one that is pretty remote from our, our experience in San Diego County in 2021. You know, ask the priests about uh, holy meat touching other kinds of food. If it does, does it make those other foods holy? Answer, no. Well, then ask a second question. What, what, what about a person who has come into contact with a corpse and then he touches those foods? Does that touching make the other foods unclean? Answer, yes. Sort of bizarre. But of course, the point here is not to have a, a theological discussion about the technicalities of the, of the Jewish uh, cleanliness laws. Let me give you, I mean, G God is making a deeper point here, uh, and it's in verse 14, but let me give you perhaps a more up-to-date scenario that I think communicates uh, the same thing. Uh, and and uh, just by way of preface, let me say that I am not advocating uh, or, or opposing vaccines. I am just giving an illustration here to make the point that Haggai was making, okay? But I think this is a, this is a situation that I, we're all familiar with and I think we would all at least relate to. If a person has been fully vaccinated against COVID and is and is perfect, otherwise a perfectly healthy uh, person, if that person, that vaccinated person, coughs in another person's face, will the person coughed on develop immunity to COVID? Well, of course, we know the answer is no. Whatever, whatever the, 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 the efficacy of a vaccine, we know it isn't passed on that way, Right? Now, second scenario, what, suppose a person is currently infected with COVID, he's sick, and, and he coughs in another person's face. Will that other person contract COVID? Well, almost certainly the answer is yes, right? Given what we know about the contagious uh, nature uh, of the coronavirus. Well, what's the point that the Lord is driving home through to the Jews through this illustration in the text and through the illustration I just gave, which I think makes the same point, the, the point is that, that, that sin is contagious, but holiness is not. That sin spreads like wildfire, but holiness and righteousness do not. And that's not just of historic interest. This, this, is a, this is an ongoing reality that impacts every one of us uh, even today. So as we, as we unpack this interesting text, let's, let's do it under three points. Here they are. First, the human condition is more dire than we generally realize. That's the first point. Second point. Self-salvation strategies don't work. And then third, 
the answer to the human condition is not progressive moral improvement, but radical divine intervention. Okay, so those are the three points. Human condition is more dire than we generally realize. Self-salvation strategies don't work. And the answer to the human condition is not progressive moral improvement, but radical divine intervention. That's, that's our outline, okay? So first, human condition is more dire than we generally realize. Most of you Christians, I think, know this. Sometimes we forget it. This may be new to you if you are not a Christian. And, and so I think if, if that's you today, this, this point is particularly important because it really, uh, it, it's, it's a point that is so radically misunderstood and it is what makes Christianity make so much sense when you understand the seriousness of the, the human condition. I said that the, the point was really made at verse 14, and it is, right? He, 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 he brings the, the, that illustration about clean and unclean back to the people at verse 14 when he says, so it, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now this isn't just talking about the people in Jerusalem, it is, but, it, but it's also talking about us. It's true of us. We are defiled, like the, the Israelites were there, by sin. And we're defiled by sin from birth. It's like we are born with, because of sin, we're born with a corrupted hard drive or a corrupted motherboard. And so everything we do is, is, is corrupted because the hard drive is corrupt, right? And, and you parents know this. I remember, you know, Linda and I w- w- had to teach our children when we were raising them, Sarah and Jim, we had to teach them a lot of things, right? How to hold a fork, how to, how to talk, how to use the potty. But we didn't have to teach them how to sin, It comes naturally to all of us, and every parent knows it. We sin because that's who we are. That's that, that, it, it's, that, it's that internal, inborn corruption of our hard drives, our, the hard drives of our souls. We sin because we're infected with it. And because we're contaminated by sin, and this is the point of verse 14, everything we do, Not just the evil things, not just the bad things, not just the lustful things, the greedy things, even the good things that we do, even our best religious acts, like the Jews offering their sacrifices, are defiled by sin. We're contagious. Everything we touch gets defiled. So in terms of, 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 uh, of 
being right with God, right? All of your rule keeping, all of your morality, all of your theological knowledge, all of your attending a good church, all of the, 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 your relatives that are, that are solid Christians are not effective to make you righteous before a holy God. I know that's hard to hear, and I know it's counterintuitive, especially for those of you who are not Christians. This, this, will, this sounds very counterintuitive, right? Because we, right, right, the, the general understanding is this is what we do, right? We, 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 we keep the rules. We get moral. We, we learn as much as we can. Well, we go to church, and, you know, and, and, and that, as, as we get better and better at that, that makes us uh, good and good with God. No. Why? Because everything we do is corrupted by sin, even the good things. Now, if you think that's just an extreme Old Testament teaching, you need to remember that it's really nothing different from what Jesus said. Jesus himself said. Now, he often communicated it, Jesus did, in a different way. What he would do sometimes is show you, uh, here's what God requires, and then he'd sort of put it, that in your lap and leave it to you to figure out, whoa, if, if that's what God requires, I'm in a world of hurt because that's humanly impossible to attain. You know, a lot of people gush about how wonderful the Sermon on the Mount is. And, and you know, we'll pro- pro- proclaim Jesus as a great moral teacher and point to the Sermon on the Mount as an example of his great moral teaching. Now, one level, I agree with that, but on another level, when people say that, I, I think you probably really haven't read the Sermon on the Mount. I, I'm more in the camp with, with the great British preacher of the last century, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is reputed to have said, if anyone ever read the Sermon on the Mount with an open mind, they would fall down and cry out, God, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. And it's interesting, that reaction, right, from, from a, from a deep-thinking Christian lines up with the reactions of a bunch of freshmen at Texas A&M. I, I've, I've referred to this article before, about 30 years ago, late 80s, early 90s, a, an Eng, a Christian English professor uh, at Texas A&M in a freshman English class uh, gave her students an assignment. It was to read the Sermon on the Mount, but she handed it out, didn't call it the Sermon on the Mount. It wasn't titled Sermon on the Mount. She didn't say where, what it was, where it came from. She said, just want you to read this and write a report on it. And, uh, and, and the papers came back, and the, and the reactions, the, the papers were so striking, she ends up writing an article about it uh, in a Christian journal. And uh, what, what surprised her initially was that, you know, all, a lot of these freshmen, you know, you're, you're Texas A&M, it's, you're, you're still sort of in the Bible belt. A lot of these kids were, were raised there, and here they are, perhaps reading it, apparently reading it for the first time, a lot, most of them apparently not knowing it's from the Bible, not knowing it's, it's from Jesus. And, and their reactions are uh, interesting. Here, she, she quoted a couple. Here's one line from one essay. I did not like the essay Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read. 
and made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. Okay? Here's another essay, line from another essay. The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. Now, it's interesting, as this, as this professor processed these responses, she, she came to understand that these freshmen had, had unwittingly picked up you know, exactly what Jesus' point was. And, and in their biblical illiteracy, they were very much probably like the first century audience that was sitting there hearing Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount, and, and, and they probably had the same sort of reactions. This is absurd. This is impossible. You're asking us to be perfect. That, nobody can be perfect. But that's, you know, that's exactly the point of the Sermon on the Mount, the holiness, the beauty, the virtue, the character that God calls us to is, is humanly unattainable. And that's the, that is the dilemma of the human condition. God is real. God is the creator. He expects of his creatures a, 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 made in his image to be like him. And, and, and now because of sin, we can't be. It's humanly unattainable. That doesn't stop us from trying though, which leads us right to our second point, the self-salvation self, self strategies don't work. I wonder if you noticed that three times in this text, and, and remember the importance of repetition in Hebrew, it's, it, it's, it's driving home, it's emphasizing something. Three times uh, the Lord issued a, the same command, and the, and the command is translated here in our translation, consider means think deeply. Once in verse 15 and twice in verse 18. So let's, which, by the way, I mean, reminds us that Christianity is a thinking person's religion. That, that Christianity requires deep thought and, and deep consideration, invites it, encourages it, Right? It's, it's not asking you to take an unreasonable, irrational leap into the dark. It's, it's not, it's not uh, getting caught up in an emotional experience. There are emotions involved, of course. But, but fundamentally, the, the, the Bible always says, look, think deeply about these things. And that's what God's asking us to do. And the first time here in verse 15, he's saying, think deeply about your lives before you started to work on the temple. Before you put stone on stone, think deeply about your lives. And remember what their lives were like before they started building the temple, right? Their, their priorities had been turned upside down. They were uh, they were involved in a self-salvation project. They were saving themselves by focusing on themselves, right? Building their homes, providing for their families, and their security and their comfort. Not bad things, 
But, that's, but they were doing all of those things as, 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 as a matter of ultimate importance without cons- any consideration of God. And God essentially asks them there in verse 16, how was that working out for you? How, right? This, this self-salvation thing you're doing. Building your homes. Leaving the temple in a ruins. How was that working out for you? And the answer, of course, is, and God gives them the answer, it was not working out so well. Right? Your yields were down. There was blight and mildew and hail. And if you remember back to chapter 1, remember God had that vivid illustration of, you know, it's, you're, you're work, you were working hard, you're earning your money, and you're putting it ba- in, your money in bags with holes in, in it. Life was not delivering on what it promised. Their hard work wasn't getting them what they, what they were working for. And that's the problem with self-salvation strategies. The same, it, 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 the, the same phenomenon with us today. Whether you're following a religious self-salvation strategy or, or a non-religious self-salvation strategy, life will not go well. It will not deliver on what, it, on what the, your strategy promises. I mean, think about it at a systemic level, right? Big picture. Uh, we have intractable human problems, don't we? I mean, problems that have not lasted decades, not, but centuries. Think poverty, right? Violence, war, prejudice, greed that leaves some people fabulously wealthy and some people starving to death, right? Uh, hatred, pollution, right? That's just, you, you can come up with a list of these intractable human problems that we've been working on for centuries, and they're still here, right? Just think about the last century and up to the present, from the League of Nations to the United Nations, from FDR's New Deal to LBJ's great society, right up to today, no matter how many programs we launch, no matter how much money we spend, no matter how extensively we educate our people, no matter how hard we fight wars or how passionately we engage in diplomacy, no matter how many laws we pass, the problems are still there. How's it working out for us? Not so good. (laughs) And it's the same at a personal level, right? If you're using religion to improve your life, then, then, you know, when you're doing well, you become the kind of person that Jesus opposed. You become a self-righteous, smug, self-satisfied Pharisee. But when then, when things aren't working out so well, you become, you you fall into a depressing self-loathing, right? Self-salvation is a relentless, religious self-salvation, relentless taskmaster. Leads to a drivenness, it leads to a lack of peace and contentment uh, in your life. You know, right now it's, it's, uh, it's Ramadan, 
and, and during Ramadan, you know, adherence to Islam, um, have, are focusing on what they call a jar, right? Which is uh, pleasing, getting credit for the good deeds that you do that add up to your uh, account on judgment day when the scales will be balanced. So, that, so that during Ramadan, there's a, this there, heightened sensitivity to this need to, 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 to do good works such as caring for the poor and being kind to each other. Problem is, it's, you're right, you never know if it's enough. And even more problematic and fundamental is what we've just talked about, right? That, it, that because of sin, our works aren't good enough. It's the same too if you're following a, a non-religious self-salvation strategy. You may be here today and you're not a Christian, but that doesn't mean, I mean, and you probably don't talk in terms of salvation. Christians talk about salvation, but you know, we're, t- we're talking about since God isn't a reality for you in your perspective right now, you know, self-salvation to you is feeling good about yourself, having, having a having self-worth, having, uh, having significance, right? Um, and a lot of people, so a lot of people will engage in, in strategies to achieve that. And I'm, I, I, I'm calling that a non-religious self-salvation strategy. And in our culture, one of the most common ways is to just pour yourself into your profession, to, be, to, to achieve your worth and your identity from your work, Right to, to to excel in your profession, uh, and 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 you and you know so you're doing that, and 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 if you're successful, your self worth and your well being go up. But but when you're not successful, and and of course none of us is on in in terms of a career is on an uninterrupted path upwards. Uh, you you know your self worth and your identity and your your sense of who you are goes down when you're when you're not succeeding. You get again, you're just on this unforgiving performance treadmill. How are your self-salvation strategies working out for you? See, it can be religious, it can be non-religious. But in either case, they don't work. Now, understand what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pursue education or politics or legislation or conservation efforts uh, or peace and diplomacy or hard work in, in, in your career. Now, the, all of those are good things and important things. But th- what my point is, and what I'm saying, is that these good things aren't, are not ultimate answers. They don't solve the problem. They, 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 they cannot be repositories of your hope because it's, it's like putting your hope in a, in a sieve, right? It all just leaks out. I, I remember several years ago talking to a, uh, an assistant U.S. attorney who had, uh, was visiting New Life. Uh, he was in an office in, uh, on the East Coast, and his job as an assistant U.S. attorney was to prosecute organized crime. He was a Christian, deep, deeply committed Christian. And, I, and uh, he, he had heard about my legal background, so 
introduced himself. We were talking uh, after the service, and I was asking about his job. Uh, and he said, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is pretty close. He said, you know, I don't have any illusions that, I'm, that what I'm doing is solving the crime problem. He says, I liken my job to cutting the grass, mowing the grass. He says, you know, that's a good thing. You, you need to mow the grass. You need to keep the weeds down. It's a worthwhile thing. Uh, but grass grows again, right? And you always have to be mowing the grass, and he says, and, and criminals are like weeds, right? They just keep popping up. They just, you know, so it's good, it's good what I'm doing. I'm, it's, I'm, I'm putting criminals behind bars, but, but just like grass grows back, more criminals are always rising up. I, I understand this is, it's, a, it's, it's not a bad thing I'm doing. It's a good thing I'm doing, but it's not the ultimate thing. It's not solving the, 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 the heart problem that leads to crime. The sin problem that leads to crime. So that gets us to our third and final point, which is, well, then, well what is the answer? And the p- title here is, the, the answer to the human condition is not progressive moral improvement, but radical divine intervention. I think a lot of us think in an evolutionary way about, even some Christians think about, uh, about Christianity in an evolutionary way, right? That it's progressive moral improvement. I, 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 I work hard at, at, at keeping the law, the Ten Commandments. I work hard at attending church and giving to the church. And, and I learn from my mistakes and I get better and better and better. And, and, uh, and, and this progressive moral improvement will ultimately make me uh, acceptable to God. That, even Christians can fall into that way of thinking. That's a, but, and that's a traditional understanding of religion. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I suspect that's kind of what you think of uh, as religion or as Christianity, that it's, it's progressive moral improvement. But that, it, it, it absolutely is not, right? And we've showed why, and, and, and this text shows us why, it can't be that. Because no matter how much you improve morally, religiously, spiritually, it can never be enough because even your good and religious work is what? It's defiled. Remember, everything we touch is contaminated. Now we've talked about, we talked about the first command to consider. Let's look at the second command to consider. Two times in verse 18, God commands the people to think deeply about What's going to happen to them now that they've started to build the temple? He says, I want you to think deeply about your lives now because things are going to change. Now that you're building the temple, I want you to watch what happens and I want you to consider it because from this day onward, you're going to be blessed. The curse is going to become a blessing. The deprivation is going to become abundance. Now, the first thing I thought when I read that was, wait a minute, wait a minute, right? If, if, if their offerings are impure, 
because they come from sinful hands. And if the work of their, if the work of their hands is, is corrupted because they're sinful, then why is that any different with the temple? Right? If, if, uh, if, if you consistently apply that principle, then, then why isn't the temple defiled? How is that any work on the temple any better than, the, than their offerings or any, any other religious work that they do? And, and in one sense, the answer is it, it isn't. I mean, you, that, that's absolutely right. In one sense, the temple is defiled. It's, not, it's an imperfect human building. That's all it is. The difference here is what the temple, is, is sort of the, why the people were doing it and, and what the temple represents, right? The people weren't building the temple because they were trying to make themselves acceptable to God. They were building the temple because God said, I want to come down and be with you and this is where I'm going to be. This is where I'm going to be present in this building you're building. I'm going to manifest my presence, my saving presence, right there. Temple is all about the saving presence of God. It's about, the temple is about God radically, supernaturally intervening into human history and placing himself right in the middle of an obscure little people group called the Hebrews. It's that radical divine intervention we're talking about. That's what God wants them to start thinking about. And think about, you know, the temple isn't just where God is present. It's also a, a physical demonstration of the defilement of human beings, isn't it? We tend to think of temples as, you know, sort of religious and holy. But the, but the, the Jewish temple was, was, was designed and used in such a way that it was advertising to the whole world that, that people are not holy, that they're not qualified to be in God's presence, that it's dangerous to get too close to God. Uh, and so the temple walls God off, Right? He's in the, the, God, when God supernaturally manifested himself in the, in the Jewish temple, he was in the Holy of Holies, which is this walled off inner sanctum in the middle of the temple. You couldn't go there. Only the high priest went there one day a year. And even to get near the Holy of Holies, there was a whole system of sacrifices, right? You, you can't think of the temple apart from from the law of, the, of sacrifices. And so all, for, for decades, centuries, countless thousands of sheep and lambs and goats and bulls were, were, were sacrificed on the altar in the temple. I mean, blood just ran all over that place. Why? As it, because it was a potent, visible reminder that human, human beings are defiled and that if we, if we dare to get close to God, there's, there's got to be a dealing, there's got to be a handling of this corruption of our motherboards. There's got to be satisfaction 
for our sin, your sin. And that's what those sacrifices were about. An innocent substitute has to die for you in or, if you're going to live in the presence of a holy God. That's what it was saying. This is the turning point, right? The turning point, and this is why their, their, their work on the temple is different. God is intervening now. Here's the turning point. I'm going to be... You're going to start being blessed now because by my grace, not because you're so good, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm, I'm going to come right into your midst. Okay. Now, we've been saying all along, right? You've got to read this, Christians, through the lens of the New Testament. We always read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. And the temple represents what? It's the, the temple is... Is, rep, it point, is a pointer, right? It's, it's not just a re, present reality, it points to a future reality. And it points to another future divine, radical, radical divine intervention into humanity and history. And that radical divine intervention is the coming of God in Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus is the true temple. The temple was all about Jesus from the get-go. Jesus said that, right? He identified himself with the temple. I'm the temple. I'm the true temple. I'm the dwelling place of God. See, Jesus is the dwelling place of God. He's the priest of God, mediating between unholy people and a holy God. And most remarkably, he's the lamb. The innocent one who has to die in justice so you can live in God's presence. And when Jesus came on the scene, he did and started his ministry, right? 30-year-old man comes out of the wilderness, been there 40 days fasting, starts his ministry, preaching and teaching. But in addition to preaching and teaching, he did something that shocked the nation of Israel. And, and was a reason for the crowds, and one of the big reasons for the crowds. Because Jesus did something no religious person would ever do in Israel, and that is he actually went out, affirmatively sought unclean things, and touched them. It was absolutely shocking, especially in light of the principle we've just learned from Haggai. Because, right, it's the unholiness that's contagious. So no religious person, no Pharisee, no priest would ever touch anything unclean because it would make them unclean. But Jesus sought them out. People with leprosy, members of hated ethnic groups like the Samaritans, prostitutes, criminals, dead bodies. And what would happen when Jesus would seek them out and touch them? The exact reverse of what had always happened. He completely reverses this principle. For the first time in history, holiness is contagious. The clean become, I mean, the unclean become clean. And Jesus didn't become unclean. Lepers were healed. Samaritans were loved and folded in. Prostitutes' lives were turned around. Dead bodies rose up in life, right? Jesus was showing us the new way. 
This is the radical divine intervention you need. It's the radical divine intervention I need. Jesus did what you and I can't do ourselves. And when you come to Jesus, when he touches you through your faith in him, when you trust in him and what he did as your God, as your priest, and as your sacrifice, friends, from that moment on, everything changes. At that moment, you look the same, but you're an absolutely new creation. You're, am, you're animated now by the Holy Spirit. You're an adopted child of the King. You are a co-heir of everything that belongs to Jesus. You're fully forgiven forever for all your sins. And your shame and your defilement is now covered by the holiness of Jesus. And so when God looks at you, Christian, you, have, you who have put your faith in Jesus and what he did, he sees a forgiven and holy person because of what Jesus did for you. And now you're God's trophy, you're God's workmanship. Saved by Jesus' works for good works. And now Christians, you can do what we weren't ever able to do before and that is to do genuinely good and work that is pleasing and undefiled in God's sight. This, friends, this is what is going to really change the world. It's going to change you. It's going to change the nation. It's going to change the world. It's the only organic, permanent change there is. And, a, and let me say a word to you young people. If you want to be a world changer, and I hope you do, then make sure that whatever you do in life, whatever you, you, you end up doing, wherever God takes you, as a first priority, advance God's kingdom. Extend the rule and the reign of Jesus. Bring people to faith in Jesus. It's the long game. It's the long game. And Americans aren't good at long games. Right? We want, we want the quick answers. Well, the quick answers aren't answers. It's a long game, but it's the only, in the end, it's the only winning game. God chides the people here for not turning to them when, when their self-salvation strategies weren't working out. You didn't turn to me, he said. And that's why he sent Haggai. Well, listen, friends, don't let the hardship of the day, don't let the failures of your past, don't let the bleakness of your future as you perceive it now drive you away from God. These things must drive you to God. God puts these things, inserts these things into your life just in order to turn you toward him, to see the futility of your self-salvation strategies, to not have you settle for second and third and fourth best. God wants the best for you, and that's why he sent the best to you, his own son Jesus. So friends, I close with this. Let the reality, let the reality of the self-giving love and grace of God the Father who sent his son to live and die and be raised for you. 
let that reality drive you Christians to recommit your life to Jesus today. To forsake the self-salvation strategies that you've fallen into even though you know better. And if you're not a Christian today, come to him now. Turn to Jesus now. Trust him and what he did for you for the first time. And know what it is to get off of a performance treadmill and to, and to, and to have the Father's heart and the Father's love and the Father's forgiveness. It is the defining turning point of every life. Amen? Amen. Well, let's take a couple of minutes, two minutes, and prayerfully in silence reflect on what God has said to you today through Haggai. Think about whether you are, are, are wrapped up in some kind of self-salvation strategy. Have you turned your Christianity into a, into a work, into, into scales, putting enough good works on the scales so God will accept you? That's a losing game. Are you not a Christian? Are you focused on your, you're focusing on your career or something else, your family, to, to bring meaning and, and significance to your life? Think about those self-salvation strategies. Think about what's really important, what really matters for your life. Think about what happens when you die. Think about what Jesus did for you. Let's just consider those things, reflect on those things, pray, pray to the Lord, recommit, commit for the first time. So let's pray, and I'll, I'll, I'll close this in a couple of minutes. Father, in so many ways, uh, we've, we've messed up. Even our successes, Lord, don't, don't deliver fully what we hope. Thank you for coming, for radically intervening in Jesus. Thank you for reversing that principle so that when you touch us, we, we become clean. Lord, help us to continue to examine our hearts, to do the hard work of, of 
considering how to put you first in all things, knowing your promise that when we do that, you will add to our lives everything else that we need. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace and your love and your acceptance. May we rest in it and enjoy it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.